and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These words of the first and the last, who died and has came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation chapter 2 this morning we'll be looking at the the second of these seven churches. If I could just be really honest this morning, I would want to tell you that I have really struggled with this passage of Scripture this week. Of these seven churches that we're, that we're walking through together, that Jesus writes them a letter, and they're all very, very different. Each one has its own struggles, its own, its own issues. Uh, each one has its own situation and, and circumstances. But of the seven, this is the one that I believe is the most distantly removed from our experience. Have you ever been in a place or, or with someone that you just really couldn't relate? They were going through something that you just really had no way of really dealing with? That's kind of what we're going to see this morning. So my, my struggle this, this week has been, how do we take an honest look at the church at Smyrna when their situation was as far removed from our situation as any situation that I can possibly think of. And so if you leave here today kind of feeling a little bit of a disconnect, I'm not really going to apologize for that. I just think the reality here is we can't relate with what this church was going through. This is completely different than our experience of Christianity. But I would say, and, I, and we will come to the point today where we'll see the church in Smyrna and what they were experiencing was and still is today the norm for the vast majority of Christians who, walked, who have walked the face of this planet. Even today in the 21st century. The majority of Christians living on this planet today are not able to gather freely and worship freely like we are doing right now today. And that's a reality that's completely different from what we experience. As we look at this church this morning, I want you to be reminded of the key to these letters. We can get sidetracked in these letters and we can kind of 
miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, when we get caught up in the details and what does this mean, what does that mean, what are these details all about, and how do we understand this symbolism? Well, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees this morning because the forest is Jesus Christ. And to understand these letters, we must read these letters. This is the first statement on your outline there. We must read these letters in light of the author, that's capital A author, that's Jesus Christ, and his authority as revealed in chapter 1. He is the author of these letters, and he takes the time to sit down with John and to dictate these letters for these seven churches. But they were not just for those seven churches. Back in the first century in Asia Minor, these letters were written for our instruction, written that we might benefit, that we might see a picture of ourselves. Now, like I've already said, this picture is going to be a little hard for you to relate with. It was very hard for me to relate with, but I hope by the time we end up today, you'll catch a glimpse of what I believe God will have us to do with the church at Smyrna. So three things this morning. We're going to move pretty quickly because there's something I want us to do at the end of our worship time together this morning. The first thing you see in verse 8 is the victorious Christ. Again, he is the author of this letter, and in each of these seven letters, he picks out one or more of the components that he had revealed himself in in the beginning, in the first chapter of Revelation. You see that you know, glorious description of the risen Christ, and John describes him with these amazing symbolic images to help us to just barely begin to understand what it was like to see Christ risen in all of his glory. And he, in each of these letters, he addresses these letters in such a way that he takes one or more of those images and applies them to that church. And each one, is specific, he didn't just choose randomly, he specifically chose an element of that revelation given in chapter 1 that would most encourage that church. Remember, Revelation, the entire book is a book of, meant to bring hope to a church that was under extreme persecution. And Smyrna was in the heat of that persecution as they received this letter in 95 AD. And so as he writes here in verse 8, he says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, he who died and came to life. And there's, there are two emphases here that he's putting forth for this church saying, Okay, remember what I just wrote to you in chapter 1. There's two things I want to point out to you, church at Smyrna, that I think will help you in your situation. First of all, he emphasizes his divinity. When he says, I am the first and the last, that takes us back to chapter 1, where the Lord God reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And the imagery here is that he is not only the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, but he is everything in between. This is saying that he is God. He is divine. He is perfect in his holiness, in his wisdom, his power, his understanding. Everything about him is God. But then secondly, he says, he who died and came to life. This emphasizes his death and his resurrection. He died and he came to life. And the, and the gospel mystery here, I love how John sneaks the gospel in here. And not really, he doesn't really sneak it in there, it's just plainly right here. But he sneaks the gospel in this way. This question being, how can the eternal God die? Have you ever wondered about that? The beginning and the end, God in his eternal state, how can eternal God die? 
This is one of the questions that scholars have debated over the years, and I'm not going to give you the answer this morning because I don't know. This is one of the mysteries of the gospel, the mysteries of what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. God in the flesh came and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, and then he went to a cross, and he poured out his blood so that we could have life in him. And the real question of the gospel is not, how is it that the eternal God could die? How can an eternal God die? That doesn't even make, seem to make any sense in, in our seemingly logical brains. But the great question of the gospel is this. Why did the eternal God die? Would you just turn to somebody next to you this morning and say, He died for you. You can do that right now, by the way. You can whisper, it's okay. He died for you. Church. He's reminding this church at Smyrna who was facing immense persecution. And you need to understand just a little bit about their situation the church at Smyrna was, was in the town of Smyrna there, and it, and it was a town that was known for their loyalty to the Roman Empire. This was their calling card as a city. If Smyrna was known for anything, it was known for their loyalty to the Romans. They had professed loyalty to the Romans, and so much so that when Smyrna was destroyed at one point, completely eradicated, the Roman emperor came in himself to oversee the rebuilding of that city because Smyrna had been so faithful to the Romans. And so when you come to 95 AD and the emperor Domitian enacts what was known as emperor worship, in other words, he erected statues of himself all throughout the empire in places like Ephesus, and a smaller one in a place like Smyrna, the, the, the emperor worship said that you could not worship, you were, it was illegal to worship anyone but the emperor. Now, the Jews were given a pass. We're not exactly sure why historically, but the Jews were given a pass. Probably they didn't want to stir up any more riots, but the Jews were given a pass, but even the Jews turned upon the Christians. And they said, look at these Christians. They're not worshiping the emperor. And so in a town like Smyrna that, that professed extreme loyalty to the Roman Empire, you can imagine what happened when those believers in Smyrna said, no, we're not going to worship the emperor because there's only one king of kings and lord of lords. He is lord. Domitian is not lord. Jesus Christ is lord. And so when they made that profession of faith, extreme persecution broke out against them. And so why is it that Christ identifies himself in his divinity? Because he wanted to remind them God is still on his throne. Nothing that Domitian is trying to do to you is going to last forever. But the things that God is doing in you, those will last forever. And he emphasizes his death and resurrection as a way of identifying with this church that was walking in a place where death was imminent. Even as he writes here in this letter. Moving on this morning, number two on your outline. First was the victorious Christ, but then in verse 9 we begin to see this victimized church. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then in verse 10, the verse part of that verse do not fear what you are about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation but be faithful unto death think about those verses just for a moment what he's saying is i know that you already have 
tribulation. This is, somebody asked me this week, what does the word tribulation mean? Well, I looked this word up, and the Greek word means a variety of problems. It means you have problems on every side. It means that you are hard-pressed in every area of your life. You've got problems at work. You've got problems at home. You've got problems in the midst of your church. Every area of your life is encountering severe problems. They already had tribulation. And they had poverty. There are two Greek words for poverty that are used in the New Testament. And one of them means that you're poor in comparison with other people. It's kind of like we would think about today the poverty line, which I believe is right around $19,000. Somebody who makes less than $19,000 a year we consider under the poverty line. That was one idea of poverty in the New Testament, that you're poor in comparison with others, kind of the poverty line mentality. But then this word, this word for poverty was something altogether different. It meant literally you had nothing. Nothing. You did not own a home. You had no money in your pocket. You did not have food for the next day. You were literally living hand to mouth. You probably didn't even really own the clothes on your back. Most of the believers in Smyrna, we understand, were likely slaves and homeless folks. You see, they couldn't work because in the city of Smyrna, they had what they called the guilds, which was, which was kind of the New Testament day uh, form of what we know as unions today. And in order to be able to work in the city of Smyrna, you had to join one of these guilds. But in order to join the guilds, you had to profess worship to one or more deities. And in Smyrna in particular, you had to participate in emperor worship. If you would not bow down and worship the emperor, then you could not be a member of the guilds. And if you could not be a member of one of the guilds, then you could not work. No one would hire you. You were blackballed. That's what these believers were facing. The only ones that could work were slaves. And they were treated harshly as well. But what the Lord says here is things are about to go from bad to worse, Smyrna. I know that right now you've got tribulation, you've got poverty, you've got slander. That word slander means, it's literally the word from which we get our English word blasphemy, which is usually meant to speak against the character and nature of God. And here it's speaking against the character and the nature of God's followers. There were all kinds of evil things being said against these folks. There were some who were saying in that day that Christians were cannibals. Now where would they get that idea? Well, they were looking at what they were doing in the Lord's Supper. Talking about how they were eating the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and drinking of his blood. And they were saying, those people were cannibals. And there were some who were pointing at the Christians and saying, those people are atheists. Well, why would they call them atheists? Seems kind of strange to us. If you think about it, in the first century, they worshipped gods that they could see. They would come to the statue of Domitian and bow down. They would go to the statues of their false gods and those temples of false gods where there would be images erected and they would worship those images. And so when the Christians began to profess faith in an unseen God, they only attributed that to atheism. And they called Christians homewreckers. Because there were so many families in which one of the member of the family, one spouse, would profess faith in Christ, and then the family would dissolve when the other person left them. They abandoned them because they didn't want to be persecuted with their husband or wife who was now professing faith in this Jesus guy. 
These are the kind of accusations, the kind of slanderous remarks that they were already facing. And then John says to them, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus speaking through him, he says, I know you've got tribulation and you've got poverty and you have slander, but guess what you're about to face? Imprisonment and death. Now folks, if there's even a mild way in which we can relate with those first three, we have a fair amount of tribulation. We could probably say, every one of us in this room has experienced some form of tribulation, though I would dare say it pales in comparison to what the Smyrna Christians were facing. Now poverty, most of us know nothing of poverty. Let's just go ahead and say it. We live among the wealthiest of the wealthy in this world, even those of us, when we look comparatively, we look comparatively at others in our society, and for most of us in this room, we're just not poor. And we may have faced a fair amount of slander in our day. Those who have spoken against you for professing faith in Christ. But when he goes on to those last two, the things that they were about to face, he's warning them in advance, you're about to face imprisonment and death because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, let's just go ahead and say it. We just can't relate. We think it's persecution when folks want to call for a vote about selling alcohol in our county. Now don't hear me wrongly, folks. I don't mean to step on any toes any more than need to be stepped on this morning. I think every one of us ought to get out on Tuesday and vote against bringing alcohol into our county any more than it already is. But that is not persecution, folks. We look at believers around the world today and I'm going to introduce you to some of those before we finish up this morning because we need to see what persecution is really about. First of all, because there may come a day when we experience real persecution. We are not promised peaceful living in this country for the remainder of our lives. You will not find that promise in Scripture. There may come a day when real persecution against believers in Jesus Christ happens in this country. If you look at history, you'd be reminded that many of those who came to this country in the first place were seeking to escape religious persecution because they were professing a genuine faith in Christ. They were seeking to come to a place where they could express that freely. But that freedom is not promised us. And we also need to be introduced to these folks because we need to see the reality for the majority of our brothers and sisters in the world. That they don't worship freely like we do. They meet in hidden places, in fearful times, under the threat of these very things, imprisonment and death. And he goes on speaking about the slander there. He says, you're being slandered by those who claim to be Jews but are not. Well, what does he mean there? This takes us over to Galatians chapter 3. You might just want to write down Galatians chapter 3 there in your notes and go look at that and see what he's talking about. Because that's going to come up again in some of the other letters. Some of their primary opponents, some of their primary opponents in the early church were the Jews. The Jews were some of their primary opponents. These were some of the ones who were selling them out 
Those like the Apostle Paul before his Damascus road experience, a Jew of the Jews, one of the leaders of the Jewish people who was seeking to persecute Christians, to imprison them, to put them to death. He held the coats of the one named Stephen, that first Christian martyr, the coats of those who were casting stones at him and put him to death because he professed faith in Jesus Christ. We understand from Galatians chapter 3 that true Jews are so by faith and not by birth. That's what Galatians, Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 3, that a, a true son of Abraham, a true person of the, we know of a Jew as one who's descended from Abraham, a true son of Abraham, he says, is one by faith in Jesus Christ, not by their birth. But he says it's not just the Jews that are slandering you, They're not your only opponents, but he says the devil himself. The devil himself is about to throw you, some of you, into prison. And you're going to face execution. But let us be reminded this morning, church, of his words when he says, do not fear what you're about to face. Now that just sounds crazy. How can you not be fearful when you're in a place where you know that you're in imminent danger of being imprisoned and put on death row simply because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And again, we can't relate. The closest we come is a little slander. We can't relate with these things, but let's try for a moment to imagine the kind of fear that would happen. How many folks would show up for church next Sunday morning if we thought there might be police waiting at the door to escort us to prison? I would dare say there'd be a whole lot more red chairs empty this morning if that were the case. But let us be reminded this morning, church, the devil is a dog and a chain and God holds the leash. Look back to the book of Job. There is nothing that the devil does in this world that is not under the complete sovereign control of Almighty God. He is using the devil for his own purposes to purify for himself a church spotless and without wrinkle without blemish in this world that is the purpose of persecution and the devil's work in doing these things even in our world today you see in the persecuted church a people who take holiness seriously they will not dabble in sin because they recognize the fact that they're dead to that and they are risking their lives every day for jesus christ you see a church that's living in holiness Whereas far too often in the American church we see people who are far too much in love with this world. Because we can afford to be. I'm going to share with you a story from the city of Smyrna just about 50 years after John wrote this letter to this church. The church in Smyrna was being led by one of the early church leaders, a man named Polycarp which is a really weird name. But if you want to read about Polycarp, there's a, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox spent a good portion of his life researching. He was an, a historian that researched the stories of the early Christians, specifically the martyrs, those who gave their faith and their testimonies, their stories, and he wrote them down. And, then, and in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he tells the story of the early church leader at Smyrna known as Polycarp. Polycarp knew that he was facing imprisonment for his faith. He had refused to bow down emperor worship. He had refused to to do what many had done and to turn away from his faith in Christ. 
And he was an old man by this point, approaching 100 years old. We're not sure exactly how old he was, but he was an old man by this time. And he got word that there were those that were coming to put him into prison and to execute him. And rather than fleeing, he simply stayed where he was. And when the guards came, when the soldiers came to arrest him, he made one simple request to them. He said, would you all sit down at this table here and allow my companions to serve you a meal? I just want to go up to this upper room. Give me one hour. I'm going to go up to this upper room just upstairs here. I won't, I won't run away. There's nowhere else for me to go. There's only one way up. I'm going to go up to this room, and I just want one hour to pray. And then you can take me away. Just one hour to pray. And the account goes that they were so dumbfounded by hearing his prayers pouring down from the room above. They were so dumbfounded that they allowed him two hours in prayer. And there were some of those soldiers who had come to arrest him that gave their lives to Jesus Christ that day. And with great bitterness, they turned him over to the authorities, believing simply based upon his prayers that he was serving the God of the universe and that Jesus Christ truly is the Savior of all mankind. There was no real trial, but simply accusations and demands made upon Polycarp. Renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. They said, if you don't renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to burn you alive, which was a common punishment in that day. We are going to burn you alive, Polycarp. Just renounce your faith in Jesus Christ and we'll let you go. Polycarp said this. Eighty and six years have I served him. And he has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king, my savior? And I'd love to tell you the fairy tale ending story that they were so stricken to the heart that they released him. They all gave their lives to faith in Jesus Christ. They dragged Polycarp outside the city and they tied him to a stake and they burned him alive. Folks, persecution is real. These kinds of things are happening today. Some of it even makes its way onto Fox News. If you've been watching Fox News lately, you've heard about a pastor named Saeed Abedini, who is an American citizen, but he went to Iran, his homeland. He went back to Iran to help the underground church there in Iran to spread the gospel. And he was arrested back in September. As of yesterday, they're not exactly sure where he is at this point. He was moved somewhere in the prison system there in Tehran, and they won't even tell his family where he is. They don't know if he's still alive. They have no clue where he is or what's happening with him. Arrested simply for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accused of brainwashing youths with the gospel. Simply because he's bringing them away from a dead religion that will leave them in hell for all eternity. And I've seen so many blog posts and responses to this story, people saying, see, that's why we need to keep all these evangelists out of countries like that. 
Because look at all the mess they cause. And they don't recognize the fact that without men like Saeed Abedini, there are millions in the country of Iran and at least 50 other countries on top of that in the world today where without men who are willing to be bold like Polycarp, without men who are willing to risk their very lives for the gospel, that there will be millions upon millions who will go into an eternity in hell having never heard the one name given under heaven by which we might be saved. Finally this morning, I want you to see the victor's crown. We have very limited time, and so I'm going to move real quick through this. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There are a lot of relationships between the book of James and this letter to the church at Smyrna. When he speaks here of the crown of life, you need to understand that there are two Greek words used for crown in the New Testament. The, the first one is the Greek word diadema, from which we get the word diadem. Crown him with many crowns, lay him upon the throne, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. This is the kingly crown. And this is one crown that you see in the book of Revelation in various places in the New Testament. It's the crown of a king. But that's not the crown that's given here to the church at Smyrna. The crown of life is the Greek word Stephanos, from which we get the name Stephen, the first Christian martyr. His name means crown. And this is the victor's crown. This is the crown of those early Olympic games when rather than getting a medal around their neck, they got a wreath upon their heads. They got the Stephanos, the victor's crown. It was the crown that a king had placed upon his hand when he returned from battle victorious. He would not take up the diadem. He would take up the Stephanos, the victor's crown. And this is the crown that is given to this church who was willing to overcome this immense persecution, the victor's crown, the Stephanos. It's the very same word that was used for the crown of thorns placed upon Jesus' head. The crown of thorns was a Stephanos. Not a diadem. Because they truly mocked him as a king even though he was the king of kings and lord of lords and he would one day take up that diadem once again when he ascended back to his throne in heaven. But they put upon him a Stephanos mocking him and not realizing that even in that moment his victory was not over them for he was not warring against them he was praying for them father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing but his victory was over sin and death and this is the victory promised to those who walk faithfully with jesus christ even unto death So I want to leave you this morning with a video. I know it's a little different than what we would normally do. But Pastor Francis Chan is going to share just three minutes with us this morning about a region of India known as the Orissa District. In the Orissa District of, of India today, it is illegal to convert to Christianity. It is on the law books there that anyone who converts to Christianity deserves the punishment of either imprisonment or death. 
And the government doesn't have to carry out most of this law because there's a group of Hindu radicals there who are more than happy to carry out any punishment that needs to be given. Ironically, there's also a a law on the books there in the Arissa district that if you want to be baptized, you have to get permission from the government. Now think about that for a moment. The government says that it's illegal for you to be a Christian, and yet they will allow you to get permission to be baptized. I think there's a plot there. It's a good way to find out who wants to be a Christian, right? Get them to sign up. It's regular violence against Christians there. And the number of thousands that have been forced out of their homes to live in the jungle in hiding, in fear. And I want to allow Pastor Francis Chan to share with you a little bit more. This is, I'm just going to go ahead and warn you this morning. This video is a little bit graphic. I would apologize for it, but we need to see it, folks. We need to see what brothers and sisters around our world today experience because they claim the name of Jesus. Once you've seen it, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer and and then we'll be dismissed this morning. Last year, I've been uh, been hearing about the persecution of the pastors and the missionaries and just the Christians in general in uh, in India and in the Orissa area, and my heart's been stirred toward it. But just recently, I saw a video of some of the persecution, and I just wasn't ready for it. understood what was going on over there and then I saw the video and I wanted to throw up when I was done watching it. it it caused me to question everything in my life I mean literally everything everything about me everything about church I mean when I saw these men of God literally being beaten I, I've never seen someone being beaten to death I've never seen people getting mobbed and literally, I've, I don't, I'm not sure that I've even seen death in, in, in a violent manner. And, and when it's the real thing, it, it, just, uh, it just makes you sick. You, 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 you knew what was going on, but to see it, it, it just, uh, it, it, I, I can't explain it. to think of people that may lift me up because I have a gift of communication or, or some other Christian who has an ability to sing or play an instrument and how we lift these people up as our heroes or great writers or when these are the ones that uh, and their lives look like Christ and 
see, when we make a, a popular author or speaker our hero, then it's easy to go, oh yeah, I want to become like him. But then when we look at these martyrs and these people who really have died for the gospel, if we lift them up to be heroes, we have to constantly ask ourselves the question, do I want to be that? talk to the people in India that are going through it, they're not asking for money, they're just asking that we remember them, that we would pray for them because they're saying many people are converting out of Christianity out of fear because people are saying, look, if you get out of Christianity, we won't do this to you. And so people are scared and, and so they're saying, would you just pray for us for courage? And I don't know what emotions go through your mind when you see some of these images, but what they're asking for is would you channel that toward prayer for us? I mean, you've listened to me speak for three or four minutes. Could you spend the next three or four minutes praying for our brothers and sisters in India, seriously praying for them? And so let's do that this morning. If you'd stay in where you are, grab a hand nearby. Just come to the middle here if we could and grab a hand with somebody that can do this morning. as we go to the Lord in prayer this morning for these who are our brothers and sisters in Christ would you just pray that God would give you an awareness Lord, in, this, in this passage again here that it just says to us that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. I can't help but think that one thing that the Spirit is saying to us this morning is that we would just be aware of the fact that we are the ones who live in a minority in terms of Christian experience in our world today. That the majority are experiencing what Saeed Abedini is experiencing this morning as he's imprisoned in Iran. What these Christians that you've just seen in the Arissa district of India are experiencing, living in constant fear, but in an amazing faith and courage to stand firm in the gospel. The armor of God is real for them because they recognize their deep need for it. And Father God, we pray for these believers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who should be our heroes. And Lord, bring us to a place of repentance for the fact that we have exalted 
great speakers, worship leaders, musicians, and authors. Lord, in this book of Revelation, we see that the ones that are exalted are the martyrs. They're given the primary place right at the foot of the throne. Remind us that our our Savior is a lamb who was slain. That the ease and comfort of our Christian experience is so unlike what most followers in Christ have known over the last 2,000 years. So teach us to pray, God. Awaken us to these realities and teach us to pray for those who are enduring persecution and to seek to emulate their faith in a place where we have the freedom to share this great gospel. Lord, help us to do it. Knowing that those who face death are still doing it because they love you and we want to love you God and we want to receive this crown of life but God would you remind us that the crown of life is given to those who are willing to walk through even the pain of death to receive it. So awaken us, Lord, empower us to pray. And Lord, build up our brothers and sisters around this world. In Arissa today, God, would they find greater faith and courage to stand. We pray for Saeed today. God, that you would encourage him. Lord, that if it be your will that he might be released from his prison. And Lord, we pray for those whose names we will not yet know this side of heaven, and yet they are heroes in the Lamb's book of life. Encourage them, Father. Build them up. And continue to send them out with this great gospel for your greater glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Let's have a seat just for a second. We, we, you just reminded we haven't taken up our offering yet. <laughs> just, just real quick, we'll take the offering. Sorry about that. I always forget something. Yes. Uh, Nona was saying that uh, Wednesday night they, we had taken up a special offering to help uh, Jeannie Phillips and her uh, expenses being in, in the hospital this last week. So... If you'd like to give that offering, you can see Nona. Is that all right, Nona? If you'd like to uh, help with uh, Jeannie's uh, hospital expenses, you can see, see Nona, and she'd be glad to get that where it needs to go. 
as we take up our offering this morning. Please get that card there in the, in the plate if you would. I know we may have forgotten about those, but um, stick that in there. And if, if the plate's already passed, you can just leave that in your seat, and I, I will come around and grab those after the service today. Let me just say as we're finishing up this morning, if, if your heart's been touched this morning and, and God has convicted you about the need to a greater awareness of the very kinds of things that, that you've seen and heard about this morning, as far as persecution in the world, let me give you a couple of websites that are really good. Uh, first one is, is persecution.com. This is Voice of the Martyrs. If you want to write that down, persecution. If you want to search Voice of the Martyrs, you'll find it. Uh, it may be persecution.org. I'm, I'm blanking on that right now, but you can find it very easily if you Google persecution, Voice of the Martyrs. They do some excellent work, and there's some ways that you can be involved, writing letters to those who are in prison for their faith, uh, sending care packages to the families of those who have who've been who've been killed there's a lot of ways you can get involved but they also will keep in front of you the need to pray and uh there's another one uh, gospel for asia if you want to write that one down gospel for asia is the one i believe the ones that help produce this video you saw this morning there's a lot of if you just search christian persecution you're going to find a lot on the internet you won't see most of it on the nightly news folks Because most of the folks that are facing Christian persecution are poor, unknown, and not really important in the eyes of this world. They are considered poor, and yet, according to the scripture, the Bible says they're rich, rich in faith. Those who are poor in the eyes of this world are rich in faith. And so let's seek to emulate them in our lives, in our faith in our proclamation of the gospel. Thank you. Let's be dismissed this morning.